Okay, we're uh, we're back at it. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I will let you down. We are back at it. That was a special intro after a disappointing weekend for Oklahoma State. I'm Carson Cunningham, joined as always by Colby Powell. Colby, we're taping this on a Monday because you were out of town, so it gave you and I a little extra time to uh, hurt ourselves and see if we still feel after the way that game played out. But uh, how are you doing today on this Monday night? I'm doing okay on this monday night it's do you remember last week what i said carson about what it's like to be an oklahoma state fan do you remember how i worded it oh no refresh my memory so being an oklahoma state fan is just one long existence of pain and as soon as you think that something good is going to happen you know what's around the corner more pain and that carson is how i feel tonight it's so true I mean, the stars had completely aligned. You get, I mean, everyone had just had chalked up a win for Oklahoma State against Baylor. I was, I think, the only person picking this to be a close game that I heard. And I, a lot of my fears came to reality, and we'll, we'll talk plenty about the game. But no, you're right, Colby. It's just, you know, and I asked for Twitter questions, and we'll get to those. And, you know, one of my favorite ones was, uh, why can't OSU have nice things? And I thought that was a good way to sum it up because that's certainly how it feels. But um, before we get into the game, and that's from Tyler Beats. Great question there, Tyler Beats. Oklahoma State cannot have nice things. We thought Squinky was dead and buried. We thought we concussed him over the head with a steel chair after Bedlam. But, um, boy, it's hard to explain the manner and the ways in which this game was lost for Oklahoma State. But uh, we're certainly going to get there. But first, let's hear from Chris University Spirit, your one-stop cowboy shop. Be sure to shop at chrisuniversityspirit.com. We appreciate Chris's for what sponsoring what was a just a roller coaster of a football season. Had plenty of lows to start, but plenty of highs. And we appreciate them being along for the ride. And, and Oklahoma State, of course, is going to play in one of the marquee bowl games the entire bowl season. And we'll get to that as well at the end of the podcast. But Colby, let's get into it, man. I mean, it's. I don't know how to start. I never know how to start these, Cole, because there's so much to get into. But I guess I will start with kind of what I just touched on in that, you know, I, I picked a three-point game for Oklahoma State, and if they scored the touchdown there, I think it would have been close to right on the money. And the reasons why is I was concerned with how poorly they ran the football against Oklahoma. I did not like the way their defensive line for OU kind of pushed around Oklahoma State's offensive line. Jalen Warren was banged up. I certainly thought he was going to play in this game. Clearly that, and we'll talk a lot about that, just the, the absence of him. But Baylor's a good team, man. I mean, their, their defensive line is stout. We knew that. Their defense is really good. We knew that. We didn't know Blake Shapin would turn into um, Chase Daniel 
that's that's the best analogy I can think of because all he did was dink and dunk for crying out loud. Like he was slinging it all over the yard. But I don't know, Colby. Just the way OSU was beat up, particularly with no Danny Godlevsky and no Jalen Warren. To me, those are the two MVPs of the entire offense. And not having those two guys just proved to be absolutely critical. And I, I posted the clip today, the fourth and two in the first meeting against Baylor. It's fourth and two. Godlevsky moves that Sione EK guy out of the way, just manhandles the, the monster that wreaked havoc all day long at Jerry World. And Warren's so good, he finds a crease and scores practically untouched. And not having those two guys, regardless of all the turnovers, regardless of the defense giving up stuff a little early in the game, to me, that was the difference, Colby. OSU just wasn't full strength, and they weren't, they weren't good enough to beat Baylor. Simple as that. Yeah, it's remarkable the difference that not having those guys made. It's, it's not only the difference that it makes in the running game, it's the difference that it makes for Spencer Sanders as a quarterback. I think that there's a direct correlation throughout his career of when he plays his best football and when his offensive line and his backs are healthy. When his offensive line and his backs are healthy, I think he plays a lot better because he doesn't feel like he has to do it all. He doesn't feel like he has to force that throw in to Presley that he tried to make there. He doesn't, he doesn't do silly things like what he did, throwing it, trying to throw it away, and you don't get it out of bounds. And it gets intercepted. I think that there's a direct correlation for all that stuff. And Carson, I, you know, you picked this game close and you were right on. I didn't. I picked it 31 to 10 Oklahoma State because I thought that the sequence of events that would have to take place for this to be a game was just something that I couldn't really foresee happening. I didn't foresee four interceptions happening. I did not foresee Oklahoma State running 17 plays from inside Baylor's 10-yard line and coming away with one touchdown in the entire football game. It was it was it was squinky back on the attack against Oklahoma State. It it just the the amount of things that had to happen for Oklahoma State to lose that game to to me was just improbable. It was unbelievable that that series of things could happen to let, and that's how inferior opponents win games, right? You turn the ball over a bunch, you make a whole bunch of your own mistakes, and then you let an inferior opponent win the game. Because I fully believe, I think Oklahoma State has a better roster than Baylor. I think Oklahoma State is a better team than Baylor. Oklahoma State certainly has the best unit in the Oklahoma State defense. Next best unit would probably be the Baylor defense and then Oklahoma State's offense and on down. But when you take Godlevsky and Warren out of it, and I mean, Brennan Presley hasn't been himself either. He was under the weather, so he wasn't really out there. I mean, you take away Godlevsky, Warren, and Presley, and all of a sudden, that offense is what we saw on Saturday at 11 a.m. And that offense isn't going to win you a whole bunch of football games. It's the same problem, Carson, that we've watched Oklahoma State deal with for decades. Every time Oklahoma State has a really good team, it's a really good unit of first-team guys. And those second-team guys, I mean, they fill in admirably and they do all that stuff, but the depth just isn't there. And you can say next man up all you want, but the reality is the guys who are out there to start with are out there for a reason. They're out there because they're difference makers, and the difference on Saturday was the guys Oklahoma State was missing because you can't tell me that not having Jalen Warren, Danny Godlewski, and Brennan Presley didn't factor into the fact that Oklahoma State could not get the ball in the end zone from the one-yard line. Oh, you're right. And it's just, hmm, I have some, my mind's going in like 10 different directions. But you're, you're right that the depth wasn't there particularly. Like, we all know Jalen Warren completely changed this season. We all know he changed the offense. Like the offensive line has blocked well for him, 
but they're running zone blocking schemes where Warren is is the focal point where it's up to him to make the cuts and make the the right moves. And, and without him, the running game was just going nowhere, Colby. They ran it 70 times. Or wait, I'm I'm sorry. They ran it 40 times for 70 yards at 1.8 per rush. Baylor ran it 62 times for 1.9. So the the rushing games on both sides were pretty much null and void. But I, I'm thoroughly convinced that they had Godlewski, they had Warren. Certainly they would have punched it in there late. But Colby, I thought let's let's backtrack a little bit. When OSU um quick quick clarification here, Carson. You said Baylor ran it sixty-two times. They ran it thirty-three times for sixty-two yards for one point nine. Yeah, this 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 ESPN box score has it flipped in the wrong direction, I think. Oh, does it? Okay. No, it doesn't. It just it reads funny, and I clearly misread it. So I'm glad you clarified that. But I, Colby, I kind of thought early in this game, I thought it was gonna. I thought right before Spencer's first interception, I thought OSU's offense was was finding its groove. I thought the defense clearly was 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 definitely already doing their thing, and Sanders again and. I know some of his interceptions this year have come when he's pressured. I haven't gone back and charted all, all of his interceptions this year. But the, his first pick, Colby, it's just a lot of his interceptions to me have come from clean pockets. It's not like he's getting flushed on all of his interceptions. Certainly on a couple of them, this against Baylor, he was one of them, which he was getting dragged down when he tried to throw it out of bounds. But that first pick, I thought, flipped the entire game. OSU gets a stop. They're in great field position. And he just sails one into basically double coverage. And it's just for all the all the great things Spencer's done, just being named first team all Big 12 quarterback, the way he's played down the stretch, the the way he let it all hang out against Oklahoma. And by it all, you know what I mean. It's just he reverted back to just the bad Spencer that we've seen throughout his entire career. And just at this point, Colby. It just seems like this is who he is. And I know he's limited the interceptions this year. He had 12 picks this year. Seven came against Baylor. Maybe Baylor just has his number. And clearly they pressured him because there was no running game and he did get pressured a lot in this game. But, Colby, you just – you can't I'm, – I'm boiling it down to that first interception. You just cannot make that throw. Like, the way the defense played in this game, you take a sack. You throw it away. You live to fight another series. Because literally the only way, Colby, they were going to score Baylor is by what happened. They're at, do you know what their average scoring drive was, yardage-wise? Oh, I, I can't even imagine. 35 yards. Yeah, I know, I know that Baylor did not score on any drive that started in their own territory. 35 yards. And they only had three red zone trips. You know, two of those when they had the ball dang near on the inside the 10 after a couple of picks. And just... Colby, so I... <laughs> As much as I was, I guess, more right about the game being close, I think you were more right just at what a clear mismatch it was. And it took just a complete calamity offensively for it to be close. And again, I'm not here to just beat up on Spencer. I mean, no one feels worse than he does. It's just, I do wonder what it's going to take. I mean... At a certain point, Colby, did you ever think about putting Illingworth in? I know he's a statue back there, and I know he doesn't have the experience, and I know Sanders is the first-team quarterback, but if you're throwing four picks, don't you sit him down for a series? I mean, they did that in Bedlam last year, and I know they 
he got beat, he got banged up, but he came back in the game. I don't know, Colby. I just I'm kind of at a loss to where Spencer goes from here, or if if he can actually ever get this out of his system, because it appears it's just it's always going to rear its ugly head at some point with him, no matter how experienced he gets. Yeah, I, I want to make one thing clear before I dive into the analysis of this game. To, to the fans that are on Twitter, you know, tweeting at Spencer's mom and tweeting all these things, Spencer's trash, Spencer needs to transfer to Northwestern State. Spencer had a really good year. Spencer, he picked a bad day to have a bad day, and he had a bad day on Saturday against Baylor. It, it's okay to criticize the play without crossing a line, and I hope that fans realize that. So anyway, just I'll get off my soapbox and talk about what took place on Saturday. That first throw, you know, Spencer goes over to the official after that throw, and he's like, you know, Presley was grabbed. He, he was held. He was turned. They show the replay. I think he probably was. But even if he wasn't, there's still not really anything there, I don't think. Because I, I know what I think Spencer was trying to see there. He was trying to see Spencer cut inside that guy and then – or pardon me, Presley cut inside that guy and then come underneath the safety. So before that ball can get to the safety, essentially Brennan would cut underneath it and take it away before the safety could get to it. Brennan could never get there. Even if he could, I mean, the guy was still in pretty good coverage. The safety was right on the backside. Doesn't make a ton of sense. Second interception – Pressure's coming. It was, I mean, look, Baylor's defensive line won on Saturday. Baylor's defensive line beat Oklahoma State's offensive line. So we need to acknowledge that as well. The second interception, I, I mean, that ball's got to be, got to be in the third row. It just has to. Give it everything you've got and get it out of bounds. What happened on that play can not happen. You, you just can't try to throw a ball away and, and let it wind up in the arms of a defender standing on the sideline. These are game-changing plays that happen early. Now, the last two interceptions, those to me are less, uh, you know, disaster plays and huge mistakes, and those are more th so things that just happen throughout the course of a football game. You know, the third interception, you could definitely argue that he held on to the ball too long, and he probably did. Gets hit as he's trying to let it go. It flutters up in the air and lands right in the hands of a linebacker. That stuff happens. The fourth interception, um, the fourth interception wasn't on Spencer. The fourth interception was on Brennan. It hit his hand. The fourth interception was squinky is what it was, Carson. It was squinky coming after Oklahoma State. It hit Presley in the hands. He bobbles, tries to regather. He gets hit. The ball then goes back, hits a Baylor defender, pops up in the air, and lands in the chest of a defensive tackle. Come on. If that's not squinky, I don't know what is. So the first two are disaster plays. The last two are just things that happen in a football game that don't go your way. But, I mean, yeah, Spencer had what I thought was a great season. He was first team all Big 12. And then he picked a bad day to have a bad day. And it's, you know, I, I've been a Spencer defender all along, and – I'll likely continue to be because of the people who, who cross the line whenever they want to criticize him. But at some point you would like to, to live in a world where we know that that four interception game isn't waiting around the corner because I mean, gosh, those are the ones that just hurt and they don't stop hurting. And that game on Saturday, you know, we can try to justify it all we want. Well, maybe the committee wouldn't have put them in. Well, if they'd have played Georgia, they would have gotten beat. I mean, sometimes you just have to embrace the pain. And the reality is that result on Saturday, it hurt. It should hurt. And it's going to hurt for a long time because, I mean, this is Oklahoma State we're talking about. It's not Alabama. You don't get these opportunities every day. And at some point, you have to feel comfortable knowing that that four interception game isn't around the corner. And I thought maybe we were to that point, Carson, but apparently we're not. 
No, and I'm I'm with you just to backtrack a little on just the social media vitriol and hate that comes out towards college football athletes is atrocious. I mean, even Desmond Jackson was tweeting about kind of just all the, all the hate he was getting and stuff. And that's just, there's no, there's no place for that. And what I struggle with though, is, you know, when, when we're asked Colby, you and I to, to come on here and break down a college football game, like, Spencer Sanders is a, is a huge topic of conversation. We, we have yeah. to break down what happened. And that's part of playing high-level, big-time college football. I mean, Spencer knows that. I mean, he's he's been nothing but great in press conference settings after tough games. Like he, He's a total pro, and I think he gets that. But, you know, our friend Adam Lunt sat right behind Spencer's mom during the game. And I can't even imagine <clears throat> the range of emotions she was going through throughout that game. So it's it's important for those people out there to remember these are human beings. And while I will criticize and and talk about the play on the field, it's also important to remember that too. And I that's something I've always struggled with with college football. These are college kids, but I'm asked to to break down what happened and I think you nailed a lot of it. I would disagree slightly on the uh Presley interception. I mean, he throws it 2 feet behind him. I mean, Presley gets his hands on it. I mean, you can always argue when someone gets their hands on a football, they should catch it. But, like, he's, like, five, six, seven feet away, and he throws it behind him. Like, you can't – you, you got to have better placement on a football than that. You just have to. So, I want to go back and watch that replay to make sure that I see the same thing I saw on Saturday. But it looked to me like Spencer had to fit it around a Baylor guy, and he, he kind of threw it – one of those deals where you kind of sidearm it and sling it around the defender to get it to your guy. So I want to go back and make sure that on replay, it still looks like what it looked like live, but I thought he was trying to sneak it around a Baylor guy. And that's why the ball position was where it was. But you know, again, the throw wasn't perfect. Your hands are on it. You probably catch it, but either way, I mean, I I just felt like the game was cursed whenever that ball bounces around for what felt like 10 seconds and then falls in the, in the lap of a defensive tackle. No, I mean, yeah, and of course the bounce occurred that way, similar to that one that bounced up in the air against against Oklahoma. That's just those are the breaks. That's squinky not being dead yet. But I don't know how you felt, Colby, going into halftime after the block field goal. I told the people I was watching the game with, um, oh, she's winning this game. And you know, some of them are big gamblers, and they took. The, I, I told them take OSU in the second half, plus the points. And I said I would even lay some money on on OSU on the money line because. All the disastrous plays that happened in the first half, I was like, this defense is not going to give up a point in the second half because Jim Knowles is so good at after coming out of halftime. And really, Baylor had nothing other than those, those short fields. And I was like, if they just eliminate the short fields, OSU's in business because I thought they were moving the football pretty well considering they had no running game to speak of. I thought the this OSU's pretty explosive offensively with their receiving core. And... It's, it's simply amazing, Colby, just this defense. And you're right, you don't get many opportunities like this. With, with Georgia getting absolutely annihilated defensively by, by, by Alabama's offense, OSU has perhaps the best defense in the country. Like, I don't think OSU's defense would have gotten annihilated the way Georgia's did. Maybe, maybe I'm biased on that. Maybe they would. We'll never know. But in the second half, Colby, they give up three first downs and 36 yards. It's absolutely astonishing how dominant they were in the second half, how dominant they've been all season. 
And if they just get a little bit of help from the offense, this game's really not all that close. But again, just I, I can't say enough good things about the defense. The the fourth down stop where Shapin is seeing so many ghosts, he just throws it out of bounds, <laughs> which you cannot do on a fourth down. I just thought Colby just, I mean, what else is there to say about the defense? They were just lights out in the second half. Yeah, the defense was unbelievable. I, I had a similar feeling at halftime. I'm down in Scottsdale with me and buddies are watching the game. And I'm like, I'm not even breaking a sweat at halftime. I'm like, okay, 21 to six, not great, but everything went Baylor's way in that first half, right up until the block field goal at the end of the half, I felt pretty good. And then when Baylor misses the field goal to keep it at a, a one possession game, instead of going to two possessions, I'm like, this is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. Oklahoma State's going to win this game. And then it just, gosh, the offense just seemingly couldn't get out of its own way. And I mean, you got to give some credit to Baylor's defense too. Petre was great. Uh, 42 was flying around the field. Man, he is he is fast. He can chase you down. Uh, I'm, I mean, obviously we saw it there at the end of the game. You, you want to try to outrun him to the corner? Good luck. Dude's quick. Uh, the guys on the defensive line, Baylor was physical. They were they out-physicaled Oklahoma State. You remember last week I sat here and I said Oklahoma State was the more physical team in Bedlam. They absolutely pushed Oklahoma around at the line of scrimmage. That didn't happen on Saturday. On Saturday, Baylor was the more physical team, particularly whenever its defense was on the field because Oklahoma State's offensive line did not hold up very well uh, in the running game. And then you get down in the red zone and that field shrinks, man. You don't have, safeties don't have to play deep. You don't have to worry about the deep ball. You put everybody at the line of scrimmage and you come after it and you say, hey, you want to go play action? You want to beat us through the air? Go ahead. Good luck. You ain't beating us on the ground. That's what Baylor said. And they executed. And, you know, it was just really disheartening to watch Oklahoma State struggle so so vastly at the line of scrimmage uh, to where they couldn't move the ball. I, I, I had a good feeling at halftime after the pass interference call against Tay Martin, which in hindsight was a great penalty for the Baylor guy to take because if he doesn't drag Tay Martin down, he catches that ball and Oklahoma State wins the game. So he drags him down. He's like, hey, run it in. Oklahoma State couldn't run it in. It's, it's just you give credit to Baylor and you scratch your head at Oklahoma State running all those plays from the one-yard line. None of them included a quarterback sneak. None of them had any motion or any misdirection. None of them were any of those pick plays that Baylor ran in the first half for one of their touchdowns where you get a guy to spring open on the edge. You run a little, couple little crossing routes and spring a guy open. I mean, you don't have any of that stuff. All you've got is just run it into a wall. And then one play action where, I mean, that doesn't work. But other than that, you're just literally beating your head against a wall of Baylor Bears. It was It was hard to watch, Carson. Just go to it. OSU had 14 offensive snaps in goal to go situations. They ran the ball nine times and they threw it five times. Seven of those 14 snaps came inside the two yard line, all in the fourth quarter, all with six run plays and one pass. Those seven plays netted minus one yard. There's no other way to say this. Casey Dunn choked in the moment. That was some of the worst play calling you will ever see, especially with that game on the line, with everything that was on the line. I mean, Colby, you've mentioned it. Baylor was absolutely dominant throughout the entire four quarters on a defensive line. You had ran it for less than two yards per carry. What were they doing offensively? You don't have Jalen Warren. You don't have Godlevsky. Spencer Sanders doesn't carry the ball, as you mentioned, 
one time. Here he is in Bedlam running a 37-yard jaunt on a speed option for a touchdown. And he doesn't even get a quarterback sneak. He doesn't get a zone read. He doesn't get a speed option. They don't even try the, the Tay Martin reverse that works so wonderfully. You could have run a fake type off the Tay Martin thing since they would have been expecting it, having run it last week. There was zero creativity. And Casey Dunn, after the game, to his credit, said, this is on me. Like, I should have trusted the quarterback and receivers more. Because Colby, they were, they were beating their heads into a brick wall. Like, I just, I can't understand how in that situation, you don't have your go-to two-point play that you would run. Your two-point play is always a play you got in the bag that you know it's going to spring open. Like, it's designed to where you go back to the Steelers-Ravens game last night. If Lamar Jackson could hit a broadside of a barn, it's a walk-in touchdown. The Steelers ran an unbelievable two-point conversion. And that's all you needed in that moment. And I, I don't know if they just thought, well, we got plenty of chances here. Let's just keep running it. Colby, what would you have done differently in, in that situation? I would have let Spencer Sanders make a play. I mean, look, the guy, he had a bad day. He threw some interceptions. But you get down there on the goal line, on the one-yard line, I want to trust the best guy on the field, and that's your quarterback in that moment. Jalen Warren's not walking through that door. Mike Gundy told us at halftime, Jalen Warren's not going to be out there. And you know that you're getting dominated at the line of scrimmage. You know that. Casey Dunn knows it. He sat there watching for three hours like the rest of us did. Why are you just beating your head against that wall? You don't have numbers at the goal line. You do not have the numbers to push them off the ball. They've got more guys than you can block. You know what you need? You need an extra blocker. You've got 11 on nine when you're turning around, handing it to the running back. At least it's 11 on 10 if Spencer's running a keeper. I want Spencer on a QB sneak on those ones that are six inches out. The ones that are six inches out, QB sneak has to be the play. I don't understand why it's not. It makes absolutely no sense to me. On the ones from the one or two yard line, let's get Tay coming across in motion. Like in Bedlam, you can give it to him. You can fake it to him. I don't care. Do something that at least makes the defense think about what you're going to do. Baylor at no point had to even think or wonder what Oklahoma State was going to do because they just lined up and ran it into a wall. And I don't understand. And then... You know, Tay is going to win the game on that fade where you get the pass interference. The the fade to Tay is a good play. He is better in that situation than any of the guys who are covering him. He gets the pass interference call, and in four more tries to score, he doesn't get another chance. Your two best players on the field at that moment are Spencer Sanders and Tay Martin, and you don't give those guys the opportunity to win you a conference championship? I... You know, he said it after the game. I should have trusted Spencer. I should have trusted the receivers. I mean, yeah, you should have trusted Spencer and Tay. Let your best play win or lose the game on the backs of your best players. I know Spencer had a bad day. He can throw a fade to Tay, a good one. He's been doing it all year. Tay's been absolutely mossing people down in the red zone. Let him make a play. Let Spencer run the ball. QB sneak it. Get an extra blocker in there. Bring in a jumbo package. Have Spencer line up under centers and, and have a couple of defensive tackles. Push him across the goal line. Do anything other than lining up in the shotgun from the six-inch yard line, from the six-inch line, and handing it to a running back who's going to run into an absolute brick wall. It, it's just there were so many options as to what could have been done down there that could have had Baylor at least guessing as to where the ball was going and making them defend multiple things. 
you basically made them defend one thing. You go play action on third down, which is the most predictable down to go play action because it's like, well, you didn't get it running it on first and second. You're probably not going to run into that same wall on third. Here comes the play action. It was pretty well defended. Maybe Spencer could have gotten it out earlier, but the, the, the receiver ran too far across the end zone. He didn't sit down where he was open. I don't know. It was just the whole thing was a train wreck. Oh, that's well said. I mean, my first instinct was, why don't you go 10 personnel, four wide? How many times, Colby, have you watched like an NFL game or a college football game when they go four wide down there on the goal line and just do the draw up the middle to the running back? Just because they have to cover the receivers. That gives you more space. I would have tried that. But actually, here, here's the walk-in or shove-in touchdown. and You kind of touched on it. I'm putting Spencer under center. I'm putting, instead of having Tyler Lacey run a pass route with the season on the line, with the college football playoff on the line, trying to throw Tyler Lacey a pass, haven't got started on that yet, I'm lining Tyler Lacey up at fullback, and I'm lining up Brendan Evers at running back, and I'm snapping the football on a quarterback sneak and having those two dudes literally annihilate Spencer from behind into the end zone. Because how many how many first downs did we see Baylor do that, Colby, where the O-line would get behind the guy who's already stuffed and they just push him four or five yards down the field? Like, that's legal now. The, the Reggie Bush push is legal. How do you not run that play? That, that is so obvious. It doesn't make any sense. None of it makes sense. I, I, I don't understand. It's, it's just the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a difficult result, a different result. They, they just kept lining up and just turning around, handing the ball off, and running into a wall. And I'm watching the thing, and I'm thinking, they're not going to do it again, and they do it again. And I'm thinking, they're not going to do it again, and they do it again. I just, God, I I mean, you know, people want to get on Twitter, blame Spencer Sanders for the interceptions, fine. Blame Desmond Jackson because he couldn't get to the corner, fine, whatever. These guys are going 100 miles an hour in game action with 11 guys on the other side trying to take their head off. The coach is sitting up in a temperature-controlled box making decisions that he gets paid a lot of money to make. And, and that's what you turn up? That's I get much more frustrated with that than I do with the players. I mean, these guys are going 100 miles an hour with people trying to take their heads off. Nobody's trying to take your head off in a box. Use your head. Use your head and call something that's going to get you in the end zone because what I saw Saturday from a play-calling standpoint inside the five-yard line was just one of the biggest train wrecks you'll ever see in your life. Well, it's, not, it's just not knowing situation. It's not taking into account the entire football game that you just witnessed from that temperature-controlled box. And just, again, just uh, I, I, can't, I can't understand the play calling. Were, were you a fan of throwing with a college football playoff and Big 12 championship on the line? Were you a fan of throwing a pass to Tyler Lacey? Carson, no. No, I was not a fan of throwing to a guy who hasn't caught a pass probably since he was in high school with your entire season on the line. I'm trying to, I really am trying to figure out, like, I want to know what the thought process was there. Maybe it was like the one play where they thought, oh, here, we'll trick them. But again, third down is the most obvious down to go play action there because you've already run it on first and second down. You're not going to do it again. And you didn't really trick anybody. And guess what? 
Tyler Lacey is not a receiver. He's not a tight end. He doesn't understand the intricacies of these routes. He gets into the end zone. He's open for a second, but Spencer's looking to his outread. By the time he gets back to, t- to Tyler Lacey, he has now overrun the gap in the defense. The gap in the defense was further over toward the, the, the goalpost. He overran it and, and ran over behind the linebacker. So by the time Spencer throws it to him, he's covered. Clearly, the first read was outside. By the time he comes back to Tyler Lacey, he's covered. It's just the whole thing was a disaster, and it's almost like that play was the one play where you tried to get cute because nothing else was working, and then it didn't work. The cuteness didn't work, so then you just go right back to everything else that isn't working. I And then, I mean, do we want to talk about the last play of the game, Desmond Jackson trying to get to the pylon? Yeah, real quick. I mean, don't you think the – what do you think the Baylor defensive players are thinking when they see Tyler Lacey in the game? I mean, duh. Why would he be in the game? Hmm. Think of, think of it's a little trickery trickery's coming here. We haven't seen this guy on the goal line all year in any of the film we've watched. It's like, you're not surprising anybody when you put your defensive in there in that situation. It's just, it's like when remember the Patriots, they always put, used to put Mike Vrabel in there and he would always catch a touchdown. It's like, clearly they're going to try to throw them the football. But yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about it. I thought when Jackson decided to bounce it outside, he was going to score. And then as he as he was running, I was like, oh yeah, he's not that fast, and this guy's closing hard. And I and again, you're right, Colby. Like he's on the field. No one else has been in that situation listening to this podcast. He's trying to go make a play. I, I get it. It just he is a power back. How he doesn't just cut up field, lower his shoulder, and just, he outweighed the dude by 20, 30 pounds. Just carry that dude in the end zone with you, man. I just, I couldn't believe, one, that he took the angle he did, and two, that he he dove when he did. He dove from the four-yard line. He, he still had the angle somewhat. I, I just, it was just, it was kind of a perfect encapsulation of OSU kind of squandering the game, I thought. Yeah, so we're in Scottsdale. We're watching the game. We're out in the backyard by the pool. We got TV on out there. We're having a good time. We're watching it. That pass interference happens, and and we assume Oklahoma State's going to punch it in. We're watching this play on fourth and goal, and I promise half of Scottsdale heard me yelling, power, not speed, power, not speed. When Desmond Jackson breaks outside, and first off, to, to all the social media warriors out there, stop using screenshots to make your point about something that happens in a football play because a screenshot doesn't do the justice to the speed that things are moving at and to the angles that are taking place. You know, people are posting this screenshot of him being like slightly outside of 42. How does he not get the corner and all this stuff? Desmond Jackson's a power back. And look, I understand. He saw that guy between him and the end zone. He didn't want to... He, he didn't want to run into him and get stood up and end up out of the end zone. And, and this is why I say, players, you're moving 100 miles an hour, guys trying to take your head off. In that moment, Desmond Jackson's trying to make a play. But watching it, it's so easy to see, hey, put that ball in your left arm, take, your, take the palm in your right hand, put it in the crown of that dude's helmet, push him off of you because you're a big dude, you're a power back, run him over and get into the end zone. And instead, he tries to outrace him to the corner. It's just one of those things that happens at full game speed that I'm sure the player in that moment is thinking, I can beat this guy to the corner. This is how I win the game. Watching it on TV, we can all clearly see you ain't beating that guy to the corner. I was talking about him earlier. That dude's fast. He is fast. 42 for Baylor was flying around the field all day. Speed is not how you're going to beat that guy. Power is how you're going to beat that guy. And Dez chose speed. 
and, and he lost that race. And I mean, he still only lost it by what, four or five inches. I mean, he almost gets there. It's just, it's a heartbreaking way to lose the game. It's heartbreaking for Desmond Jackson, who, you know, has been with Oklahoma State for years now, has had good times, has had injuries, has worked his ass off to, to get his opportunities that he gets because he's never been the number one man on the depth chart. And then he has the opportunity to go win the game and win a conference championship. And you come up just inches short. I mean, as a fan, you're sitting out there, you're mad. I get it. I mean, imagine how Desmond Jackson feels. All the work that went into that moment and he doesn't get the corner. It's it's tough. It, it was tough to watch. I'm sure it's been incredibly tough on him. Um, I, I hope he keeps his head up because that's just a, a football player making a, a decision in I mean, you, you've got probably a tenth of a second to decide, am I going to run this guy over or am I going to race him to the corner? And in that tenth of a second, he decided to race him to the corner and he lost the race. So it's easy for me to say on TV, run him over. I, I wish he would have run him over. Um, I get it. He thought he could beat him to the corner and he didn't. That That's football, I guess, Carson. I, I, I don't really know. Uh, I don't really know how I want to break down that play because that, that decision happened so fast. And I mean, it was the wrong one. Yeah, and I, I saw people speculating, like, well, why wasn't Jaden Nixon in the game? He's so much faster. It's like, well, if you watch the play, the, the design is not for him to go to the pylon. <laughs> the design was him to cut back, off-tackle, power his way in. And that, and I know Dominic Richardson was banged up. The design of the play was totally walled off. Shocker. Right, exactly. Now, was Dominic Richardson banged up, or did they just go with Jackson because he's the bigger back? I I. I, I heard he was banged up, but I think Jack, I think Richardson was available. Yeah, I mean, Richardson scored the touchdown on for the, the only touchdown of the game from the four yeah. yard uh, there in the third quarter. So, I mean, I don't know how banged up he was. I, I don't know if he gets the corner there, if he was banged up, or if he even makes the cut to the edge. I really don't know. I think they just went with the bigger back, considering they're on the half, half yard line, and the big back tried to run for the pile on. It just... Uh, it's, it's, it's nuts. But what, what did you think about all the short field goals, Colby? I know they were on the six yard line for two of those. And I know they didn't have much success near the goal line, but just, man, the way the defense was playing Colby, like, come on, man, you're playing for a big 12 championship. If you don't get it, you're winning the field position battle. You put your defense back out there against Shapin, Who's, who's look, he played fine, and you want to cite his 14 for 14. That's fine. I thought Jim Knowles could have adjusted a little sooner on the on the dink and dunk plays over the middle. But, man, just with the defense you have, Colby, don't you just – don't you go for it, man? If you don't get it, you don't get it, man. I just – I hated the short field goals. And, and I look, I, six yards is a lot in that situation. I understand. But, man, I just – I think you're asking for trouble, Colby. You just keep kicking field goals, keep kicking field goals, and just – giving Baylor good, better field position than that when you kick back off to him. Yeah, Carson, I, I mean, I've shared this philosophy many times. Uh, everybody knows where I stand on it. Every time you kick a field goal from inside the five-yard line, you are three points closer to losing that football game. Um, I, I think one thing that really gets downplayed when we talk about um, kicking short field goals, everybody's like, well, you got to take points. You got to put the points on the board. You know, you don't want to give up three points there. And I don't think enough is factored into the fact that if you go for it and you don't get it, it's not like the other team is just in the red zone about to put up points. The other team's now on their own two-yard line, on their own three, four-yard line, 97 yards away from the house, and you've got one of the best defenses in the country. To me, kicking 
is not trusting your defense. It's the opposite. And, and I think so many people make it about, well, take the points, trust your defense. They'll get you the ball back. You can go try to score again. For me, trusting your defense is going for it on fourth and goal from the three-yard line. That's trusting your defense because you know, you know, if you don't get it, your defense is going to force a three and out. They're going to be punting from the back of their own end zone, and you're probably going to get the ball on your opponent's side of the 50-yard line. That's trusting your defense. I I don't get it. So, um, yeah, I mean, trust your defense. Go for it on fourth down from inside the five. Uh, any, any field goals from inside the five, I mean, obviously, if you're trying to win the game or something like that, that's a different story. But I just, I, I don't like it, Carson. I don't like it. No, and I, I'm so with you in that, you know, they don't get the ball, obviously, in the red zone. They're, they're backed up. You, that place was 75% OSU fans. That crowd would get so far behind that defense running back out there on the field. You wouldn't believe it. And, like, sometimes OSU's best offense was, either, was their defense out there on the field. And so I just – I hated those decisions. And I, I think there's a lot of criticism to go around for the coaching staff, particularly the, the, the play calling inside, inside there. But I just think – I just think Mike gets he just gets a little tight in big games. And and look, I, I don't I don't think he is just gonna start going for it every time down there. I just wish he would just say, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna go for it here. You you see that Dave Aranda has gone for it like more than anybody in the Big Twelve. He's gone for he's gone for on a fourth down like close to 40 times. They popped up the stat during the game. And I think that's that, and because he knows he can trust his defense, and so you're you're so right. You are kind of just giving up by kicking the field goal on your defense, because I, I just would have loved for them to run back out there. But but I again, Aranda made a disastrous fourth down decision in the third quarter, and and I'm the most aggressive guy in the world. I love going for it on fourth down. But Spencer Sanders was having himself a bad day, and you're up 21 to six going for it on fourth down from your own 30 yard line. I was very puzzled by that Aranda decision. And then I actually thought that I was living in an alternate reality when I saw a quarterback throw the ball out of bounds on fourth down. Well, I think he was seeing ghosts. I think Jim Knowles was in his head. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know what down it was probably at that point. But did they really go for it on their own 30? Uh, I mean, I don't know if it was their own 30. 35. Uh, 36. So, yeah, you're you're not wrong. That's That was a terrible decision. And, I, look, I'm – and again, that's that's apples and oranges, right? You're on Baylor's five yard line, and you're kicking field goals, and he's going forward on his own 36, up 21 to six. And you're right, because at that point, if you're Dave Aranda, you just you just keep letting Spencer Sanders throw you the football, because that's what he was doing throughout that game. But again, I, I want to give Baylor a lot of credit. They are they're a really good team. I think Dave Aranda is big time. And what won this game was their defensive line against OSU's offensive line, because OSU couldn't run the football. They had to put too much on Spencer's plate. And that's what's been successful for OSU this year, Colby, is they've taken so much off of Spencer's plate, letting him game manage, not throwing it up for grabs. They really limited his pass number attempts throughout the season. And this, and in this game, he had to throw it because they just they simply could not run the football. And that that's where you just you just you shake your head that they don't have Warren, they don't have Godlevsky, and they were put in that position. But again, I as poorly as OSU played offensively and as much as they kind of gave the game away with, with turnovers, Baylor made a lot of those happen too by getting all over, over Spencer. So I, I couldn't have been more impressed with, with how well Baylor played because similar to how I thought OU or OSU won Bedlam on the strength of their defense and special teams, Baylor won this game on the strength of their defense and their defensive line. Yeah, all the credit in the world to Baylor. How do you beat a more talented team? You out-physical. 
them at the line of scrimmage. It's what Baylor did. Uh, I actually thought Baylor's offensive line held up pretty well, even though they gave, I think it was five sacks. I mean, I, I still thought that they held up fairly well throughout that game. And then Baylor's defensive line just absolutely dominated Oklahoma State's offensive line. I think Dave Aranda is big time. I think Grimes, the OC. Uh, another thing that you can do inside the five-yard line, and I see it done at every level of football every week. So many teams utilize it, and Oklahoma State never does it. You line one guy up outside. You line one guy up in the slot. They crisscross. You you wall off a defender, and you've got a guy wide open by the front pylon for a touchdown. And that's what Grimes, Jeff Grimes did in the first half. He's giving Blake Shapin easy throws. That was an easy touchdown throw. He was going play action on, on third down and very short because he knew Oklahoma State is selling out to stop the run in that first half. And it's like, hey, if you want to beat us going play action, go ahead. Most teams aren't trying to do that. And he tried to do that. Uh, you know, the, the one big-time throw was the one to uh, Tyquan Thornton in the corner of the end zone. That was a big-time throw, big-time catch. Uh, you know, it, it came after the lateral. I, I'm not really interested in the whole officiating conversation. I wasn't interested in it last week after Bedlam. I'm not really super interested in it. This week, there were a couple of calls that could have gone your way that didn't. I, I really, truly don't believe that that was a factor in deciding the outcome of the football game. You ran 17 plays from inside the 10-yard line, scored one touchdown, four interceptions. You know, it's just you can only make so many mistakes and still expect to win a game. And I just, I mean, yes, we can all just in general agree that the officiating throughout the season was mostly incompetent. But if you start taking football games that are played for 60 minutes by grown men who put everything into it and barreling it down to five guys in black and white shirts. I just, I don't much believe in that. Um, yes, those things do matter, but that didn't determine the outcome of that game Saturday. What what do you think about uh, specifically the lateral, which I thought went directly sideways, but I even told my buddies during the break, I said, I've been an Oklahoma state fan long enough to know that they're not giving us this football. That was the one to me that I thought they got wrong. But again, that happened so early in the game. You had your chances to win. I don't know. What, what'd you think about all that on Saturday? I told my friends the exact same thing. I was watching with some of you guys that I know. And, uh, I said, there's no way they're going to call this a fumble. There's just there's no, no way. way. And, and I thought in, I thought in the first first couple of looks, it was obvious that it went backwards. But the more they kept showing it, I thought it landed almost ident I like absolutely perfectly parallel. I thought it was completely a sideways pass after like Great. the 15th review. So I, I just kind of shook my head and, and went about my way. Now, the one I'm upset about is the Baylor calling timeout the officials stopping OSU from running a play when they don't have a timeout, no penalties called. And cause at that point, Colby Baylor was absolutely confused. They were absolutely, that's why they call a timeout when they didn't have one. They're like, we got to stop that. We don't know. We don't know what's happening. And that really hosed OSU because they had them on the ropes in that moment. They could have done a quick snap. I don't know. Although granted, they probably would have ran to a brick wall, but still, I just thought that was egregious officiating to stop the game because they're, they're supposed to, in that moment, Colby, ignore it. They're not supposed to stand over the center and tell Spencer not to hike the football. I thought that was just another calamity from, from the Big 12 officiating. Carson, somehow in everything that's taken place over the last 48 hours, I forgot about the timeout that wasn't. And uh, again, don't think officiating determined the outcome of the game. But again, you just let the play go. It's, you know, there's a bunch of people on Twitter trying to figure out the rule. Is it a penalty? Is it not? All this stuff. You just, you're supposed to just let the play go there. They don't have any timeouts. So if their backs are to the line of scrimmage when the ball is snapped because they're trying to call timeout, so be it. 
Um, again, that's just, it's just another thing that went against Oklahoma state and it's the heartbreaking fashion in which Oklahoma state lost that game, the series of events that had to take place. It was just brutal. Um, yes, they shouldn't have been allowed the timeout. Yes. You, you should have been able to get in from the one yard line. Um, it, it's one of those things. I mean, there was pass interference last week in, in the Bedlam game. Those, these things happen. You've got more opportunities to make plays, go make plays. Um, the officiating is, is inconsistent. It's not great, but ultimately I think that the, the players and coaches determine the outcome of the games. Uh, and I think that was the case Saturday, but yes, the timeout that the wasn't what the timeout that wasn't was a disaster from that crew. Carson. Oh, sorry. I was muted. Uh, no, I mean, no one got out again or what happened? No, we're good. No one's taking pity on OSU. Like you had plenty of chances to score from the, from the one foot line and you couldn't do it. And you had plenty of chances and, and Baylor deserves the credit there. But there also was a, a slight horse collar on the Desmond Jackson touchdown. And I didn't notice it in the moment, but if you go back and watch it, Colby. I think that's what pull ultimately pulls Desmond short. I think Desmond was shocked. He didn't hit the pylon. He kind of turns around and looks at the defender. Like what just happened? Cause if he, people have like still framed the photo of him pulling the, the collar and look, they're, they're never calling that when it's not that obvious at all on, on that play to, to decide the game. So I'm not complaining. It's just, those are the breaks. And again, they had plenty of opportunities to do it, but did you notice he kind of horse collared him there? Yeah. And to me, that's a very gray area of that rule because the rule is designed you're not supposed to drag someone to the ground by the horse collar, right? We saw a bunch of broken legs and stuff were happening in the mid 2000s. They, they bring out this rule. Can't do that. That was not dragging somebody to the ground. That's like a guy's diving and you reach out. But again, and this is why I say don't use screenshots to make your argument because is, is an OSU fan honestly going to sit out there and tell me that they watched that play live at live speed. The, the officials are watching it at live speed and thought Oh my gosh, horse collar. I, I mean, I didn't see a horse collar until somebody slowed down the replay and showed yeah, the yeah. screenshot and all this other stuff. Like it was certainly not egregious enough that you're, there's no crew in America that calls a horse collar on that play. You, you couldn't even hardly tell until you slow it down and screenshot it. it. It just looks like the guy's hand just scrapes down the back of Desmond Jackson. And then you, you go slow motion and you, you, get the perfect angle and you get the screenshot and all this stuff. Uh, also the official closest to that play is on the front side of the play. He's not on the back side of the play. So yes, a screenshot will tell you that they missed a horse collar on that play, but nobody watching it live was like, Oh my God, what, how egregious is this that they missed a horse collar? No, I mean, it's, it's silly. I mean, again, OSU had plenty of chances to win. You got to give Baylor credit and OSU, OSU squandered the game. They were they were the better team, even though they had all those issues blocking and just the, the turnovers and lack of execution by the offense was just that was the difference. It wasn't officiating, that's for sure. Uh, let's get to bullets and BBs, Colby. Plenty to go around. What direction are you going to go in tonight? Uh, bullets and BBs. Um, gosh, there's so many that could be given out. I'll, I'll start uh, then. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I, I know where I'm going, but fire away. My bullet could go in a lot of ways. Of course, Jim Knowles, I mean, just really put a cap on what was 
I mean, he should absolutely win the Broyles Award. I know he's he's out there now uh, for the for the ceremony and all those things. He he was sensational. But I, I want to go bigger picture, Colby. It it was really amazing to me to t- kind of take a step back and look at the photo of Jerry World and see how much orange was there. The, the announced attendance was like 70,000, and about seventy five percent of that was OSU. And it just kind of I kind of looked at it and just thought back to when I was a freshman in college and they were just starting building the West end zone. Uh, Mike Gundy's team was terrible his first year. He had to run off so many of less miles players to see what OSU football has become and to see the momentum it has right now. And particularly on Saturday and just how bought in Oklahoma state people are in this, this program. It's amazing. I mean, OSU is now a big-time football program. And Mike Gunny talked a lot about that in the lead-up, just what a big-time atmosphere they have in Stillwater, what they're trying to do to continue that. I don't know, man. It it made me really proud as an alum to see just what OSU football has become, the way the fans travel. OSU travels as good as anybody, even though the fan base isn't as big as, say, in Alabama or in Oklahoma or in Ohio State. They travel, man. And just – I know it was – a typical disappointing Oklahoma state uh, loss in the jaws of victory, but it's pretty amazing just to take a step back and see where they are as a football program right now, as we stand in 2021. And it's just, I don't know, man, I really wasn't even all that upset after the game, just because I, again, I thought Baylor deserved to win with the way they made plays at the end of the game. You know, OSU simply was just a, a, a disaster on their goal line offense. But I don't know. I don't know how you feel, Colby. I just it's it's pretty damn cool to to see Jerry World filled with orange because I think they're going back next year with all they have coming back. And I don't know, despite the loss, it, it made me it made me really proud. So I want to give a bullet to just the Oklahoma State program, the Oklahoma State fans who showed up in droves. And uh, again, this is part of being an OSU fan, as you said from the very top. And uh, OSU football is going to be just fine. You don't get me opportunities like that. It's going to hurt. It's probably always going to hurt. Just like 2011 against Iowa State. We'll be talking about this game for years. But again, it made me really proud as an alum. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a great one because it's easy in the moment to be so upset about what took place Saturday that we forget what has happened all season, which has been a really special season and a team that we're going to remember for a long time. And I mean, that that's my bullet is just this defense, Carson, every guy who has played for this defense who's run scout team against this defense, who's been there at practice, the coaching staff on that side of the ball. This is a unit that we are going to remember. I mean, seriously, for the rest of our lives, the way some of uh, the old timers talk about like that 84 defense, that 83, 84, those years. I mean, we're going to be sitting here, Carson, in 20 years, and you and I are going to go, man, you remember that defense in 2021? You remember Malcolm and Devin Harper and Tyler Lacey and those guys? Man, those guys were ridiculous. It's just, again, we're so upset because of what happened Saturday. But whenever you think about what we watched on that side of the ball this year, I I don't know. I mean, you retain Jim Knowles. You get a lot of these guys back. Maybe we see this special of a defense again. Maybe we do. I don't know. But, man, maybe we don't. And if we don't, I hope everybody enjoyed the ride because this, this was different and this was special. And uh, that entire unit and everybody who had anything to do with the season that they put together on that side of the ball deserves a bullet because that unit was special and we're going to remember it for a long, long time.
Oh, that's a great one. I thought Malcolm Rodriguez proved he was the defensive player of the year. I mean, imagine not voting for him as defensive player of the year in the Big 12. Ridiculous. I, and Petrie's great. He's going to be a, a high draft pick. I get all that. But OSU's defense was the best defense in the league, certainly, maybe even in the country. And Rodriguez was the heart and soul of that defense, along with Devin Harper. So I just – I thought the voters really really botched that. And Rodriguez made a big statement in that game that, that he's the best defensive player in, in the Big 12, maybe even – Deserving of the Buckus Award as well. Uh, what do you got for uh, BB? BB Carson. Unfortunately, we're gonna have to finish the season right where we started it. My BB is going to Casey Dunn. I, I really thought the back half of the regular season, he he was so much better. I thought he was hitting his stride. I mean, in, in Bedlam, the first half, especially. I mean, he was in his bag. He was tr- trickery, reverses, all this stuff. And then we start the season right where we finish it. A couple of guys are out with injuries and everything comes to a crashing halt and play calling included. I mean, I understand guys are hurt, but it doesn't mean you can't run an offense that wouldn't be so easy to defend the, the play calling down there at the goal line. Just, I still can't figure it out. And, um, you know, earlier this season, I, I, I say earlier this season through like three weeks when the offense was an absolute train wreck. I didn't think Casey Dunn would be back next year. Now I do think Casey Dunn will be back next year because Again, the second half of the season, I thought he was pretty good. I shot it, thought he showed a lot of growth and learned a lot of things. And, um, you know, just because he had a bad day Saturday doesn't mean he can't learn from that and be a better OC in the future, just like Spencer can learn from that and be a better quarterback in the future. But, uh, again, the guys on the field, things are moving 100 miles an hour. People are trying to take their heads off. Nobody's trying to take your head off in that 70-degree box. Nobody's trying to take your head off up there. And you've got to be able to be better than that in that big of a situation. So um, I think he'll be back next year. I I hope he continues to grow as an OC and see more of what we saw uh, in Bedlam, in the the TCU game, some of that different stuff, because what we saw Saturday was pretty rough from a play calling standpoint. So finishing the season right where we started it, the the BB goes to Casey Dunn. I think he will be back next year. I do think he will be back next year. Uh, I'm not certain of it, but I th- I think he will be back next year. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have any information on that. I haven't heard one way or the other. I just, I, I agree with you. And I, I personally don't think I would make a change just because Spencer Sanders has had three offensive coordinators in well, his I was career just already. Ask you. I, I, was, I was just fixing to ask. I was going to say, do you really want Spencer Sanders to have another new offensive coordinator his final year in Stillwater? Or do you want to hope that him and Casey Dunn get it to click? I, I think I would choose option number two. I do too. And I, I'm torn on it because part of me wants to say, go hire Dana Holgerson. And by what I mean by that is who's the top offensive coordinator in the country. Dana was certainly that when OSU went and got him. Part of me wants to do that. Another part of me is, can Spencer Sanders withstand a whole new system, a whole new coordinator, and play at the level they need him to next year? I, I question that with all the turnover he's had to deal with in his career. So, And again, Dunn had this offense rolling pretty good when he had Jalen Warren and Godlewski. I mean, they their, their yards per play number was pretty good against Oklahoma, who's a really good defensive team this year. And so when he had his guys, when they had the receiving core healthy, when he had Brennan Presley, I thought the offense – was pretty good there at the, the latter part of the year. So I don't, I don't think it's enough to, to make a change. I, I don't know what happened on the goal line. I don't know if, if, if that was Mike overruling him, if that was Casey calling the plays, it's that, that age old argument we've had for years under Mike. 
I'm pretty sure it was Casey and, uh, and it just, it didn't, didn't work out. Let me ask you this. Shouldn't Oklahoma state. And look, I know you got Illingworth. We still don't really know how he's going to be incorporated into this offense, considering he's so different than Spencer. You certainly have Spencer coming back, coming off a first team, all big 12 quarterback season. I wouldn't hate the idea of, of flirting with the transfer portal and bringing someone in for just pure competition where if Spencer's throwing four picks, you can bring someone in who's a little more similar to Spencer. They can run the same offense. And look, I know they like Yellingworth. I just, I don't see them putting him in the game over Spencer. And it certainly, well, maybe that, maybe I'm answering my own question here about the transfer portal, but I wouldn't hate with how many quarterbacks from the transfer portal every year, bringing somebody in for competition. So the problem with the, the Illingworth thing is your backup is so remarkably different from your starter in style, in, in size, in, in everything, in every way. He is so much different from your starter that you can't really just mix and match whenever you want to. Not that you necessarily want to. You got two quarterbacks. You got none. I understand all the old cliches. I don't know that I totally love the idea of the transfer portal because I think the best Spencer Sanders is a confident Spencer Sanders. But... <sighs> You know, it's, again, he had a good year. Baylor obviously got the better of him. Three picks in the game in Stillwater. Four picks in the Big 12 championship game. I I just, Carson, I think that they're far enough down the Spencer Sanders trail that that's just where you're at. I, I think you're just riding with Spencer for another year, and you're just hoping that you get the absolute best out of him in his final year in Stillwater and that he, you know, continues to learn from all the mistakes and all the scar tissue and all that stuff. I, I think at this point, um, Carson, you uh, you a Texas Hold'em guy at all? You familiar with the term pot committed? Oh, yeah. So I think Oklahoma State's pot committed on Spencer Sanders. It's it's too late to fold. It's too late to do anything different. Um, I think Oklahoma State's pot committed, and I expect them to ride with Spencer Sanders next year. And I don't even necessarily think it's a mistake. He, he led you to 11-1 and one in the Big 12 championship game. And then he had his worst day of the season, biggest game of the season. But – you just hope another year older, another year wiser, keep watching film, keep learning, and hope he gets better. I think that's where they're at right now offensively with quarterback. You got to know when to hold them. <laughs> know when to fold them. Don't you know when to walk away? I'll, uh, I'll leave the singing to you for the pleasure of our listeners. I know you're pot committed, but you got to know when to hold them and fold them, though, right? You do know when to hold them and fold them. As someone who uh, ventured off to Talking Stick Casino while I was down in Phoenix and proceeded to lose the money that I made on the golf course, I'm going to I'm gonna leave the poker references where I left them. Yeah, and I'm not advocating they run Spencer off by any means. I just thought that was an interesting question to, to pose to you. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm largely in agreement with you on that. It definitely uh, is. It's just, again, you hope that next season we can get to a point where we're not all just – Clutching our purses, waiting for that four interception game. Exactly. So, um, my BB, I was watching at a at a restaurant and slash bar, and when OSU lost the game, there was a guy at the bar wearing an OU hat and an OU polo, starts screaming as if Oklahoma had just won their elusive eighth national championship, just just to be a jerk. For all the OSU fans that were in attendance. And and I was actually, I was one of the cool things about the game on Saturday and the way the season kind of unfolded, Colby. I had so many OU friends tell me they were they were pulling for OSU. The guys that were with me were pulling for OSU. It was actually, 
I felt like I was living in bizarro world that OSU was playing for a Big 12 championship and that OU fans were rooting for them. And you had this jackass, this absolute loser, deadbeat, celebrating like he had just won the Super Bowl because OSU lost to Baylor in the Big 12 championship game. Like, come on, man. <laughs> You've already won. You've already you already won a million conference championships. You've won seven national championships, and you're you're that big of a D bag that you're gonna just be that jerk in the room. I just thought that BB goes to that loser. Because again, I know a lot of great Oklahoma fans. And and again, I don't even care if my OU friends or people that aren't my friends root for OSU. I don't care. But to just to just do that to be a total jerk. I just I got to give a BB that random random loser. I I really wasn't even upset after the game until that jackass started popping off, and I I had to I had to yell a few things at his his direction. I I said something like because uh, he was he was kind of chirping during the game. Oh, uh, when they called the interference on Tay Martin, he starts chirping about how oh you had interference, and I kind of just yelled out in his direction. I said. Dude, you never got in the red zone the entire second half. Get in the red zone, then talk to me. And uh, I don't think he liked that, so maybe that's why he went off at the end. But I got to give a, a BB to the, the loser OU fan and any loser OU fans that were, were celebrating that. No, that's a good one. And you know what's crazy, Carson, is that's the same guy. I promise. That's the same guy who will go, well, it's not a rivalry. It's not a rivalry. Look at the, look at the long record. It's not a rivalry. Okay. Okay, taking taking pride in your rival losing, yeah, that's a rivalry. Uh, and and guess what? I don't. I I have good OU friends who are OU fans too. All that stuff. I don't need OU fans to root for OSU. I don't care. I don't care who you root for. I don't care what you think. I I have reached a point, Carson, and it took me a long time to get here because I I used to get upset about it when I was younger. I'd get on Twitter and all this stuff, and it would upset me whenever OU fans are on there talking trash. But now I accept it for what it is. It's a fan base who is spoiled with success. And, you know, again, like I said last week, our entire existence as Oklahoma State fans is pain. They have one bad, like, 72-hour stretch, and they totally implode in on themselves for an entire week because they just can't handle it. It's just let them say what they want and ignore them. Don't, don't fight with them on Twitter. It's not even worth it. It's just it's the same stuff over and over again. You lose to them. Oh, little brother, rinse do. You beat them. Well, look at the all-time record. It's just the same thing over and over again on a loop. They are the most predictable fan base. Uh, they, they've been predictable the last 10 days throughout the Bedlam game, losing their coach, the coaching surge, hire a new one. It's just it's all been so so predictable and comical. So, uh, yeah, just don't don't worry so much about OU fans, OSU fans. Let them do what they want and just ignore them. Absolutely. You ready for Twitter questions? Yeah, let's do it. We got some good ones. Yeah, I posed on Twitter to ask us some questions on the pod, and uh, let's get right to them. I thought Ethan Nickel asked kind of one of the bigger questions in the aftermath of the game, Colby. He says, I'm not going to, or he says, I'm going to be that guy. If Jackson hits the pile on, would we have made the playoff over Cincinnati? I'm hoping the answer is no, so I can move on with my life. <laughs> what say you? Because it was, it, it ultimately was Colby kind of the doomsday scenario. Cincinnati wins in dominant fashion. Bama wins. Michigan wins. And it, it would have come down to, to Cincinnati and Oklahoma State. Yeah, uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I do think it mattered. I, I think that if Oklahoma State wins that game, uh, they jump Cincinnati in the college football playoff rankings. The committee has been pretty consistent. You know, uh, I, I think 
like I've said all along, I think they get it wrong a lot after week seven and week eight and week nine. I think usually the four they put in is, is right and is pretty consistent. They put power five champions, one loss power five champions in over undefeated group of five teams. It's just what they do. And I know Cincinnati had the win over Notre Dame in the non-con, which a lot of these other groups of five don't. But I still think Oklahoma State beats Oklahoma and then beats Baylor in back-to-back weeks, gets those top 10 wins. Because the committee tells us every week, it's a whole new resume. It's a whole new resume every week. And if you take Oklahoma State and Cincinnati's resumes from a week ago, and then you add a win over top 10 Baylor at Oklahoma State, and you add a, a not even top 25 win for Cincinnati over Houston to theirs, I mean, that gives Oklahoma State's resume a, a big bump. So, yes, I know that this probably adds to the pain, but I am, I am fairly convinced that the committee, true to what they've done in the past, would have left Oklahoma State over Cincinnati had Oklahoma State beaten Baylor. What do you think, Carson? My first reaction was no, that Cincinnati would get in. But the more I've thought about it, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think they were looking for a reason to not include, include a group of five. Um, television ratings matter. I don't know if you saw the TV ratings for OSU and Bedlam. And now, overall, they're just behind Oklahoma and Texas as far as ratings in the Big 12. That matters. And I would make the argument, Colby, Oklahoma State has a better resume if they win that game than Michigan, who's probably going to be the two seed. I mean, Michigan lost to Michigan State. Their their main win was over Ohio State, which is a great win. But OSU has more, would have had more top 10 wins than they did. And I just, I don't think there would be any denying Oklahoma State with the resume they would have posted having beaten Baylor twice and Oklahoma. And I just... And, you know, beating Boise out of conference, too. I just – I think there could be an argument that OSU should have been the, the two or three seed, let alone getting in. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they get in. Uh, and we were having this conversation. Look, I'm sure all Oklahoma State fans were having this conversation with their friends and their family. Would we have gotten in had Oklahoma State scored right there at the end? Uh, we were split three to one. Three, three of us thought that Oklahoma State would get in. One guy on the trip thought that Oklahoma State wouldn't get in. I think they would have. Sounds like you agree. So uh, I know that that doesn't hurt, make it hurt any less, but not here to make it hurt less. Like I said earlier, sometimes you just have to embrace the pain. It's, you know, you can say you get killed by Georgia, you get killed by Bama, whatever. I'd, I'd love the opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm embracing the full pain that Saturday costs us the chance to watch Oklahoma State play in the college football playoff. Yep. Uh, Justin Phillips says, who will be favored to win the Big 12 next season? Let's assume Caleb Williams returns for Oklahoma. It looks like that's going to happen. He was at Brent Venable's introductory press conference wearing his uh, the, all the T-shirts saying, we are OU football with all the players. Uh, you think Oklahoma's favored? Favored? Are we talking about Vegas favorites or, or who are we favoring? Be favored to win the Big 12 next season. So I, I assume he means Vegas. Uh, Vegas is going to have OU as the favorites. It's you have to understand a little bit about how Vegas works. Number one, they like to get money on all sides so that they juice it up and win regardless, but you're also going to get worse odds on, uh, on teams that are incredibly popular to bet on. So Oklahoma will be the betting favorite. I would imagine next year and Oklahoma, I would imagine next year will be one of the best teams in the big 12 and will have a good chance to win the conference. A lot of guys are leaving. Not everyone is leaving Venables. Um, good hire. I, he's never coached before. I don't know how much success he's going to have any more than the next guy does. Uh, but you know, seems, seems like he'll, he'll do a good job. Um, 
Don't think OU's going to be a juggernaut next year. We'll see how many guys they lose on the D-line. Nick Benito's going to the NFL draft. We'll see what Perry on Winfrey and Isaiah Thomas do. Um, losing some of those guys could hurt. Uh, I did see where they just lost the number three overall player in the 2023 class flipped from Oklahoma to Texas A&M with the loss of Calvin Thibodeau on the defensive line staff. He's leaving Oklahoma as well. So, uh, yes, I think Oklahoma will be. That's a long way to answer the question. I think Oklahoma will be the Vegas favorite next year. And because Texas was such a disaster, I don't think they'll come in number two. I think OU will be the betting favorite. I think OSU will be number two. Yep, that's well said. Would you favor, would you pick OSU first in the preseason poll for Big 12? Uh, I think I, that that question's so hard to answer as we sit here on December 6th because I don't know what the rosters are going to look like. I need to see how many of these guys come back to Oklahoma State next year. I need to know about Jalen Warren. I need to know about Christian Holmes. I need to know about some of these other guys to answer that question. Sitting here today, I'll probably say, assuming you retain Knowles, I, I, I'd probably say I pick OSU one but I reserve the right to change my mind once I know what the rosters actually look like going into next season. That's well said. I would lean Oklahoma State at this point. I mean, OU's losing Jaden Hazelwood. He's transferring to Arkansas. Marvin Mims might transfer. They're going to have some Austin Stogners in the transfer portal. Like They're going to be losing a lot of current players. I know they're losing recruits, but the current players, as far as the skill positions, I think it's going to be a concern for them moving forward. Uh, but you're right. As we sit here today, it's, it's hard to tell. You think they poach anybody from Clemson? You think anybody comes with Venables? Well, those kids are. <laughs> we know Venables' kids. Who, one of them plays linebacker there. Another one plays safety. I think you know they're coming. I don't think he'll poach current players, but he's already poaching a, a recruit or two. So that's what I think. But they'll they'll dip into the transfer portal with to replace those guys that I just mentioned. So I mean, Oklahoma will probably be favored as they you know always are. Um, Michael Cox asks, "How do I ever let myself trust again?" Do you have any advice? No, that's a uh, send that one into the into the newspaper. I've got no advice. Good, best of luck to you. I, I don't know. Again, again, we're always sitting here waiting for the four interception game. It's hard to trust. It really is. I have a counterpoint to this question. Okay, I was actually talking about this with with, with my buddy, and he was. This was before this game. Clearly, he said, "What if OSU makes the playoff, beats Michigan?" and beats Georgia for the national championship, what would you do? And I, I kind of looked at him and said, I don't know. Would I just, would I be done at that point? Like, have I just, do I just cash my chips in and just say, I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't need anything else. Like, do I just, I literally don't know what I would have done. And like, how do you top that Colby? How do you top a season, which you thought they were <laughs> after the first two games, they might not make a bowl game to winning the national championship. I just, I thought that was a funny way to look at it from my from my own perspective. I, I know what you would do. You'd probably be out in Vegas partying on the on the winnings. But I, I mean that that's how you let yourself trust again. You, you keep you keep hoping for that magical run to eventually happen. I don't know if it will, but you know what's the Ted Lasso quote? He's like, no, I think hope's a, a great. I can't remember the exact quote, but he says uh, it's about hope and. I know this, the way it ended this year, people are lacking hope moving forward. But just think about it in that perspective, Colby. What would you do if OSU had beaten Georgia for the national championship? I think I'm good at that point. I think I'm, I think I'm right off into the sunset with, with, uh, with BB and Warren the Cowboy. I, again, like you said, I don't know what I would do. I think I would be in shock. I, I don't know if I'd even be able to celebrate. I think I'd just, 
I'd probably sit around and wait for the NCAA to take it away. I have no idea what I would do. It'd be an alternate reality that I wouldn't even know how to process. Well, just Michael, let yourself trust again because hope is a good thing. So the hope is still around the corner coming up next year. Um, any more questions we got here? We touched on a lot of them, a lot of Casey Dunn questions. You and I both think he will be back. Um, there's there's some people in here asking about, you know, how do you take this program to the next level? It's I, I've talked a lot on this podcast about the club and about how if you're not in the club in college football, this sport is, not, is not designed for you to get in. I mean, this is not – the NFL has more parity than any other sport. Why? They, they do inverse order in the draft. They have a salary cap. They have all these things, things that don't exist in college football. It's not designed for parity. So I think, number one, you manage your expectations. Oklahoma State's not going to come out next year and all of a sudden have the number one recruiting class in the country and have 14 guys that are going to get drafted and be Alabama. That's not going to happen. You take baby steps over the course of time, and that's kind of what Oklahoma State's been doing, isn't it? And, and I know it feels like it's taking forever, but it, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of investment from a lot of people uh, with time, with energy, with money. I mean, it costs a lot of money to compete at the highest level in college football. And it takes a lot of people putting in absolute maximum effort. And I think a lot of things are going right in Stillwater. I, I just... I hope people aren't sitting around just thinking, well, what, what has to happen for this to become a, a national championship program? A lot of things have to happen. And as a fan, you have to accept that for, for Oklahoma State to win a national championship, it's just going to take a perfect season of everything going right because they just can't come out and be Alabama tomorrow. So I would say don't make yourself miserable as a fan worrying about the next step because the reality is the next step is not – uh, a, a long jumper in the Olympics. The next step is a baby step and you just keep making baby steps until hopefully one day you wind up at your destination. And hopefully at some point in our, in our lifetimes, Carson, Oklahoma state hoists a national championship trophy. If they don't, they don't that's college football. But uh, I would say, don't, don't expect for that step to be a massive one, expect it to be a bunch of little ones. And hopefully at some point you wind up where you want to be. Well, I think the, the first step for me is coming up with the money to pay Jim Knowles. If, if Oklahoma State wants to get to that level, you can't keep losing coordinators. I mean, OSU has lost probably more coordinators than any school over the last 10 years. And that's a testament to Mike Gundy making good hires, a testament to all the winning they've done. But if Oklahoma State wants to get to the next level, they got to open the checkbook. And it starts with him. OSU already pays their coaching. Like, I would be far more concerned about the football program and again, they get they get a massive discount on Mike Gundy at five million dollars a year with what he's his track record is. If you you see these coaches get nine, ten, eleven, twelve million dollars a year, who've done a third of what Gundy's done in his career, and so they they pay their coaches well, and I, I think they'll keep, continue to do that. What's exciting for me is I think Weiberg, Chad Weiberg, the AD, and Mike Gundy are on the same page, which hasn't been the case for a long time in Stillwater, and I don't know financially. If they can afford, you know, these massive recruiting budgets that they, they would need, that's been, a I think, a gripe for Mike for years is they don't have the same budgets as, as the schools are competing against budget uh, recruiting wise. If I think Chad Weiberg's the guy, though, that can can start to trend in that direction with the financials, because that's his background. He was in fundraising for a long time, and he he's very much like a Mike Holder that that's kind of his lifeblood. And he knows how important that is. 
So OSU's in a great position, man. I touched on it earlier. Like the, the home atmosphere is incredible. I mean, any recruit that went to Bedlam, I don't know how you wouldn't want to be a part of that. Mike Gundy is winning. Uh, he's, he's recruiting better. I mean, you just look at the, the Shetron brothers coming in with Braylon Presley on offense with all the receiving talent that comes back with Spencer coming back. Uh, running back is a lot to be determined there. But things are trending upward toward that direction. And I think to answer, that's a long way of answering that question that I think this administration is ready to take this to the next level. And not that Mike Holder wasn't. I just think that the um, the chemistry is far, on a far better page because you have to be on the same page with your head football coach and AD. You just have to. And I think, as I mentioned, everyone's all in right now. And I think that'll lead to a better financial position for all the all the periphery periphery needs you need and as a football program. I really do. Yeah, and Carson, they've started putting out the Mike Gundy Coaches Show out on podcast form, so I've been able to listen. I listened last week, and Mike Gundy, I, I really liked the way he was talking because the way he was talking, he was talking about the, the game day experience and bedlam and, and everything that comes along with that, and he kept talking about – turning Oklahoma State into an elite program. He, he kept saying elite program, that, that next level. So he's talking about these things. It's, it's not just contentment. It's talking about that next level and getting there. And then uh, here's my Jim Knowles take, Carson, if I can get this to play. Uh, and, of course, I'm not going to be able to. So That man, uh, his money. His money. How do I know you're going to play that? Pay that man his money. Let me predict Blank that before you played it. Blank check. Did you? I've, yeah. I've, I've got like four things playing in my headphones over here that probably aren't coming through the air. I predicted that clip, that exact clip. So well done, sir. Well done. I'm on a roll, man. I predict, I, I said, Oh, you should hire Brent Venables a year ago. So, Hey, somebody dug up that old tweet. And if you haven't seen it, Carson tweeted in January of this year. Hey, just hypothetically, if Lincoln Riley leaves, who should OU go after? I say Venables. And here we are on December 6th, 11 months later, and Brent Venables is the head coach at OU. Shout out to you, Carson, for some some foresight that clearly nobody else had. Joe Castiglione should send me a finder's fee for that, I think. 10% of the overall contract, I think, is yeah. what you do. Love it. Uh, any more questions before we get out of here? Uh, I don't believe so. I mean, Venables at OU, I... I'm sure people want to know how we're feeling about that. How are you feeling about Venables at OU? I think sometimes the obvious hire is the right hire. I do. I mean, for all the talk of, of a Dan Lanning, the defensive coordinator who's young and hungry and it's kind of a Bob Stoops 2.0, he, he's trying to get to Brent Venables' level as a defensive coordinator. Brent Venables has been the best defensive coordinator for a decade. He recruits SEC country. It just it makes a lot of sense, and he's it appears he's going to hire Ole Miss's offensive coordinator Jeff Lebby, who's one of the best offensive coordinators in the country. And I just think, and this isn't like hindsight. This is kind of what I've thought about OU for the last couple of years. Is they weren't a very tough football program. Baylor pushed them around. I, I mentioned what Teddy Lehman said on the on the Brennan Presley kickoff return for a touchdown. He said. Their cover, their uh, their blockers absolutely annihilated OU right on OU sideline to set the tone in that game. They just they've kind of gotten into a soft finesse football program, and Brent Venable is going to change that. Anytime you anytime you make a, a coaching hire, you always kind of want the next guy to be diff, like a drastically different coach than the pre, the predecessor. And I think that's exactly what they did. And so look, Brent. Brent doesn't have the head coaching experience. Head coaching experience to me is, is vastly overrated. OU's never hired a sitting head coach other than Howard Schnellenberg. I think 
I think Bud, Barry, and Bob worked out okay without head coaching experience, don't you? So I think it's a good hire. I think he's going to recruit really well in the SEC. And I guess the simple fact is, Cole, we don't have to worry about it for too much longer. Yeah, I mean, we really don't. And uh, I've got a few thoughts about the whole situation. Num- my first thought is about Jeff Lebby. Uh, I think that Jeff Lebby is a scumbag. I think he's absolute trash for his role that he played and what happened at Baylor. I think it's shameful that UCF gave him another opportunity. I think it's shameful that Ole Miss gave him another opportunity. And I think it's shameful that he's being hired at Oklahoma. But again, that's just me getting on my soapbox about what happened down at Baylor, of which Jeff Lebby was a huge part and was directly named in lawsuits. I, so I'm not a Jeff Lebby guy, and I think the fact that he's even in college football is shameful. I'll get down off my soapbox again and talk about football. Brent Venables, I think, is a good hire. Everybody speaks very highly of him. Obviously, what he's done at Clemson uh, is, is just a remarkable level of success on that side of the football. Now, the belief is that he will hire a defensive coordinator, so he won't be running all that himself. It's very different being a coordinator and being a CEO. Um, the, the thing that has struck me over this past week uh, more harsher than it ever really has. And maybe it's because this coaching cycle has been so silly is that fan bases, anytime there is a new coach, I mean, that's the guy, right? That's the guy that's going to lead them to the promised land. Miami fans, you can't convince Miami fans that Mario Cristobal is not going to win a natty down there. Same thing with Brian Kelly at LSU. Same thing with Riley at USC. Same thing with Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame. And same thing with Venables at Oklahoma. Every every major program that gets a new coach just assumes that that's going to be the guy to lead them to a natty. When the reality is, if you put the over-under at .5 for all five of those guys... I mean, I don't know how many guys hit the over. It's hard to win national championships in college football. I think Venables is a good hire. He's never coached before. I don't know what his level of success is going to be there. There's still a lot of uncertainty with the move to the SEC. When does that move happen? You know, how many recruits do you lose in this one cycle? Because Lincoln left you. It's just the whole situation is still, I think, a little chaotic until you figure out What's the staff look like top to bottom? What do the recruiting classes look like top to bottom? But I do think uh, that Venables is a good hire, knows the program, knows the region, knows defense, and I do think that we will see a more physical Oklahoma football team under Brent Venables than we saw under Lincoln Riley. Does that mean I, I would rather have Brent Venables coaching my team than Lincoln Riley? No, not really. I think Lincoln Riley's a, an offensive genius. I would love to have Lincoln Riley coaching uh, my, my Dallas Cowboys. But, you know, I think it's a good hire, but only time will really tell because he's never been a head coach before. So a uh, little bit of soapbox there and a little bit of football. And that was more than I bargained for on the soapbox. Whew, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to smoothly transition to the Chris University Spirit Uniform review. Go. Brought to you by Chris's University Spirit. Colby, I thought they lost the game with by what they were wearing. I thought that set the tone for the entire day. Why didn't they go black, orange, black? They beat them in Stillwater in black, orange, black. We both should have been right. They should have won the game in black, orange, black. I agree. The uniforms were the issue. They 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 were trying to be Clemson light. I, I mean, I just I. Uh, it's, oh no, Carson, is Clemsoning an OSU? Is Clemsoning going to become an OSU thing? Oh, OSU invented Clemsoning. <laughs> I mean, the- come on now. We we've watched OSU football a long time. We were we were Clemson before Clemson was Clemsoning. I'm okay with Clemsoning if it means that the next step is the same one that Clemson took. I, I'm we're now okay. a blue blood. Yep. Right. I'm okay with Clemsoning if it means at some point, instead of Clemsoning, you're out there just beating people up. Uh, hopefully, at some point in time, we see that day come. 
And you know what's funny about that? I just remembered this. Kyle Porter used to get on this about recruiting. He kind of went over Clemson's entire infrastructure. And Clemson is a very, I've always heard Clemson is almost an identical town to Stillwater. Small college town. The only thing there is campus, practically, although Stillwater's becoming bigger and bigger by the day. And they've kind of transitioned from, now they did win a national title in like 81. So that's a, that's a far, far cry from what OSU was doing in 81. But I don't know. There, there is a path now with, with Oklahoma moving on to, to kind of run the, the Big 12. And that, that's certainly exciting. What, whether it'll be Clemson, I don't know, because Clemson's around a lot more good football players over there in the Southeast. But it's certainly interesting. Uh, before we get out of here, Colby, let's talk about the bowl game, man. Fiesta Bowl against Notre Dame. That's uh, that to me is probably the best non-playoff matchup of the whole the whole bowl season. I, I love seeing them get that nod. I was a little worried they were going to get get left out, but they didn't. Oklahoma State Notre Dame is a hell of a consolation prize for not going to the college football playoff for both of those programs. And I actually think that this is a really meaningful game for Oklahoma State. And I don't typically feel that way about bowl games. And maybe that's because we're usually watching Oklahoma State play Missouri in Orlando or in the, in Memphis or Nashville or playing the Alamo Bowl. But this game against Notre Dame, I think matters because we talked about the committee and the things that the committee does. Another thing the committee does whether they want to admit it or not, they look at what's taken place in the past. They know what's happened in previous years. They know who won the year before. And next year, let's say all things go right and Oklahoma State's in the college football playoff conversation again, and it comes down to Oklahoma State, Notre Dame. You think that those people in that room aren't going to look back and say, well, I mean, these two teams played each other and Notre Dame won by four touchdowns or Oklahoma State won by four touchdowns. Not that I think either team will, but I hope that both sides have all their guys suit up and play in that game. Again, I don't blame anybody who doesn't. If you're going to the NFL and you want to opt out of the bowl game, that's fine. I understand it's just an exhibition, but I think that this particular exhibition game against Notre Dame means something because I think that the national perception of Oklahoma State could become a little bit better if you go out and really let your defense stick it to Notre Dame and, and shove them around. So hopefully we get a healthy Oklahoma State team and everybody dresses out and plays in that game because beating Notre Dame, I think, would go a long way toward the national perception of Oklahoma State that we're all very tired of the lack of respect that Oklahoma State gets nationally. I think you can just, again, baby steps, just one little baby step to changing that. And I think uh, I think the winning the Fiesta Bowl would be a baby step. Totally agree. And I, I thought in a similar fashion, the win over Stanford validated that 2011 team as well. And I think, I think you're totally right about that. And leave it to Iowa State to embarrass the conference again. Because remember, they, they played Notre Dame in a bowl game a year or two ago and just got absolutely annihilated by Notre Dame. And of course the narrative was big 12, not any good. uh, So, you know, I I think this is a massive game for Oklahoma state and certainly the perception of the conference as a whole. And just to show you how far OSU's come, Notre Dame offensive coordinator, Tommy Reese says, this is a barometer game for us. Oh, that tells you all you need to know. I missed that. The only one I saw was, uh, some I get it wasn't anybody on the team, so that makes more sense that somebody on the team would say something respectful like that. It was someone in the Notre Dame media, some reporter or something, who referred to the Fiesta Bowl and the Big 12 as street football. Okay, I, I, I didn't see what reporter that was, but that just it's amazing someone can be that bad at their job to think that. I really hope 
that Malcolm Rodriguez and Devin Harper and Colin Oliver and Tyler Lace, I really hope that those guys are all healthy and on the field and really show them what street football looks like. I really, really hope that at noon on January 1st, we're watching Oklahoma State just physically belittle Notre Dame. It's going to be fun. I mean, uh, I'm calling it the Caden McFarland Bowl. Our friend oh, up in, I- our friend up at Channel Two in Tulsa, massive Notre Dame fan. He's he's a great follow. If you don't follow him, follow him on Twitter, Caden McFarland. And uh, you know, he's had his fair share of takes about the Big Twelve as a whole. And I'm going to be coming for him and for all those takes he's had over the years. If OSU takes care of business against Notre Dame, but Notre Dame's oh, a really yeah. good team. Should be a great matchup. Yep, should be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Hey, Colby, this was therapeutic. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed the, the Johnny Cash intro. Um, I know it hurts, uh, it just, but, but again, it just reminds us that we still feel. And again, hope is a good thing. So, Colby, I will leave it at that. And uh, thanks for joining me. We'll get back with you later in the week. Absolutely. I mean, as an Oklahoma State fan, there's only one thing you can do. Embrace the pain. As always, go Pokes.